And God's people said, Amen. Thank you, folks, for helping to lead us in worship today. We're indebted to these folks who allowed their routines to be disrupted so they could come and lead us in worship today. Thank you for that. Obviously, right now, our number one concern is everybody's physical well-being. We're all concerned that we stay safe and healthy as much as possible, and that's why we're all making these drastic changes and allowing these interruptions into our lives so that we can guard one another's physical well-being. But along with that are a host of other concerns. There have been major disruptions in our social lives, but quite frankly, also in our financial lives. Some of you watching this right now may already be feeling the pressure as uh, work has come to an end and sources of income have been cut off. And if that hasn't happened yet, you're anxious that it might. I think we have to begin just by acknowledging that and being honest about that and being not afraid to share those fears with each other. God invites us to bring everything before Him. But that's part of the reason I want to take a moment and just be very transparent with you and, and ask for your help. Uh, obviously, we are all feeling the pressure, but the needs of ministry go on. Uh, the church, just like your household, has fixed expenses. And so we want to be very open and honest with you and ask for your continued financial support, even while activities have been closed and routines have been disrupted I, I know that because of the economic slowdown, some of you are already finding that you're not in a place to give like you once were, and we entirely understand that. We would simply ask that as we weigh our entire financial situation, that we would keep the needs of the church as a part of that conversation. Uh, I want to read a quick passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, was writing to a group of early believers uh, he was preparing them for a visit that he was going to be making, and part of the purpose for his visit was so that he could receive an offering from them that he was in turn going to take with him back to Jerusalem to support the ministries of the church there. And here's what he said. He said, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Those are very relevant words for us. We're not seeking to make anybody be hard-pressed, but simply for all of us to share out of what we do have so that together we can continue the important work of ministry. If you scroll down to the bottom of your screen, you'll see a Give button that'll take you right to an online platform where you can very conveniently and very securely make an online gift. We would be so grateful for your continued support. And in the meantime, if you find yourself in need, reach out for help. Ask others. If need be, reach out to us. We'll do what we can to get you connected to resources while together we make our way through this very difficult time. And now as we continue in worship, we're pleased to welcome Mr. Ethan Bowser. Ethan is a senior at one of our local high schools and will be heading off this fall to study music at Virginia Tech. So let's welcome Ethan. Thank you, Ethan, for sharing your talents with us today.
Thank you, Ethan. The story is told that at the end of the First World War, there was a unit of soldiers who, because of the trauma of the battlefield, suffered from what was then called shell shock. We didn't know then what we know now about post-traumatic stress disorder. All that was known was that these men had suffered trauma in battle and as a result had amnesia. They'd lost their names and their identity. They didn't know who they were or where they were from. They didn't even know which military unit they were supposed to be attached to. And because of the chaos of war, the records were faulty. And so the French military couldn't even figure out who these people were and where they belonged. Well, somebody came up with an idea for how to solve this problem. Uh, It was announced throughout the land that on a given day at a certain place in the city of Paris, there was going to be what they called an identification rally. And anybody who had a loved one missing or unaccounted for in the war was encouraged to come and be present. A stage was erected and One by one, these amnesic uh, soldiers would come out and step up to the the front of the platform and, and peer out across the group and would say, please, is there anybody out there who can tell me who I am? I think that's a relevant question for us today. We long for a sense of identity and purpose a sense of connection, a sense of belonging, to know that we are connected to something bigger than us that gives our lives structure and identity. And the challenge we face is that the world is very quick to answer that question for us. The world will never be short of answers for who we are or who we're supposed to be. The world will tell us that we are supposed to identify ourselves by things such as our vocational status, what we do for a living or where we live, or, or our socioeconomic category, or, or the people groups that we belong to, or, or our race, or our nationality, or, or any of an endless list of ways to identify ourselves. But the Bible calls us to identify ourselves differently. And that's why several weeks ago we began a series of messages called simply Remembering Who We Are, Finding Our Identity in Christ. And today we're going to pick back up that series and and trying to build in some normalcy to our lives during this chaotic time, continue that important conversation. And we're doing so by looking at several passages of Scripture that specifically call us to remember certain things. Verses in the Bible that use that direct word. Uh, When we began this series several weeks ago, we began with the announcement that we are to remember that we are dust. That whatever we may think of ourselves and however high we may reach in life, at the end of the day, we're just dust because that's how God formed us. And then the week after that, we were called to remember that we are slaves, or that we were slaves in Egypt. That's what God said through Moses to the people of Israel just before they took possession of the promised land. And we looked at some practical implications that act of remembrance has on how we treat others, how we connect with God, and how we think about ourselves. 
Today we come to the next in those series of messages, and we're going to stay once more in the book of Deuteronomy, this time in the eighth chapter. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to take hold of it and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, and let's read together the eighth chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 20, and here's what Moses has to say to his people speaking on behalf of God. He says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness That thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. 
Let me ask you to pray with me. Father, I ask you now to come and be present in these moments. Do not allow the technology or the newness of this platform and this experience to hinder your word from going out and having your way. Move among us now and accomplish your purposes that your people might be renewed. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, you may find yourself stuck at home these days, and you might be looking for a good book to read, and I have one I want to recommend to you. I don't often recommend books, but this one was one I enjoyed. It was by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you may have read some of his stuff. He's published one just recently, but the book I have in mind came out back in 2008. Uh, The book is entitled Outliers. And in this book, Malcolm Gladwell uh, looks at and re-examines our notion of success. And in so doing, he challenges our traditional understanding of the self-made man or the self-made woman. Part of our American dream, our American ideal, is the idea that anybody can accomplish anything if they're willing to work hard enough and have the right determination and the right ingenuity and the right giftedness. You can go from nothing to great heights of success, surely by your own effort. And as Malcolm Gladwell would have us to understand, that's true, but it's only partly true. Because he makes the case, at least, that most people who achieve success have some hidden advantage somewhere along the way that helps to propel them along, some advantage that they themselves did not control. As an illustration, he invites us to consider the tallest oak tree in the forest. And he asks, how did that oak tree become the tallest? Is it simply because that one tree came from a healthier and hardier acorn than all the others? Well, maybe, but it might also have something to do with the fact that that acorn happened to fall where the soil was richest and deepest. It happened to fall in a place where there weren't any other trees around it to block out the sunlight and where a rabbit didn't happen to come along and gnaw it in two while it was still a sapling and where a logger didn't come and cut it down before it had the chance to grow to full maturity. Point being simply that that there are a lot of factors that had to line up in that oak tree's favor to give it that status. Now, admittedly, we're not oak trees. We are human beings with the power of agency, which means we can exert our will and our energy, and in so doing, we can bring changes into the world around us. And that's why, all else being equal, we can say with some confidence that the person who's willing to work harder will go further than the person who isn't. But therein lies the challenge. Because life being what it is, all else is not equal. And so in case after case and story after story, uh, Gladwell gives examples of how people who achieved success had some advantage that worked in their favor some historical twist or some gathering of circumstances or something else that was beyond their control that enabled them to go a little bit further than other people who might have been willing to work just as hard and who had just as much uh, giftedness. Now, you might disagree with Gladwell's thesis, and that's certainly fine, but just reading the book alone made me realize how much 
we need to exercise a spirit of humility because the truth of the matter is that none of us are self-made men or self-made women. None of us got where we are purely by our own efforts and our own energies. To prove this, I simply have to ask this question. How many of you listening to me today had anything to do with your own birth? The answer, of course, is none of us. We owe our very existence to choices that our parents made, choices over which we had absolutely no control. We can walk it back even further from there to our first parents. As we talked about a moment ago, God fashioned Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth, and it's only because He breathed the breath of life into us that we became living beings. The Scriptures couldn't be more clear. We are not self-made people. That point gets driven home in the book of Deuteronomy in a lot of ways, but it really comes through in sharp focus in the words that we just read a moment ago. Now, if you worshiped with us a couple of weeks ago, you've already heard, heard me say this, but it bears repeating. The book of Deuteronomy comes at a critical time of transition for God's people. They had spent 400 years as slaves down in Egypt. But then God sent Moses to come down and confront the Pharaoh and ultimately lead the people out into freedom. That confrontation happened in a dramatic way. There were gnats and flies and locusts and rivers of blood and angels of death and parted seas and drowned soldiers. And well, that was just the beginning. So never let it be said the Bible is boring. But all that drama was really just the beginning of the story. Because after the people fled and were safely out of the reach of the Pharaoh, they would spend the next 40 years making their way through a barren wilderness as they traveled towards the promised land, Canaan, the place that God had promised their ancestor Abraham all those many centuries before. The book of Deuteronomy opens up as the people are finally, after 40 years, standing on the threshold of that promised land. They can look across the Jordan River and see spread out before them the place that they are now going to go and occupy. This is the place their ancestors had dreamed about and longed for, for generations upon generations. But before they go in, Moses decides to walk the people back through one more time and repeat everything that God has said and everything God has done up to this moment. Now, the reason for that retelling or that repeat is twofold. Number one, the people who are about to go in and occupy the promised land are not the people who came out of slavery in Egypt. That first generation of freed slaves had all died in that wilderness. It wasn't an accident or a coincidence. It had been that way because God had ordained it. As punishment for their repeated disobedience and unfaithfulness, God announced that those who had come out of Egypt would not live to see the promised land. Only their children and grandchildren would. And so these people who were about to occupy the promised land had not been firsthand witnesses to everything God had said and done. So it was necessary to retell and repeat the story. But just as importantly, God understands how forgetful we human beings are. 
He understands that we have a way of thinking certain things and forgetting the truth about where we came from and where we're going. And, and so before they go in to occupy their new home, God needed to reiterate and drive home a few points. And that's what brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and this call to remember the Lord your God. That call looks in two directions at one and the same time. First, those words look backwards. Moses wanted to remind the people of everything God had done for them to bring them safely through those 40 years in the wilderness. You probably picked up on it in the reading we shared a moment ago, but the real estate between Egypt and Canaan was pretty rugged. Not an easy place to make a life for yourself. And so Moses, in effect, looks at the people and says, Now tell me, how exactly is it that you managed to survive 40 years in that wilderness? You were in a place with no food, and yet you never went hungry. You were in a place where there was no water, and yet you never died of thirst. You were in a place where there weren't any retail outlets, and yet your clothes never wore out. You spent 40 years walking through the desert, but your feet never swelled. How is that possible? Well, the answer was obvious and simple. It was possible because God had provided for them. He is the one who had fed them. He is the one who had cared for them. He is the one who had led them. And so the successful completion of their journey through the wilderness didn't have anything to do with their ingenuity or their resourcefulness or their hard work, and it certainly didn't have anything to do with their faithfulness and their obedience. It had everything to do with His providence and His grace and His mercy. He was the one who had brought them this far, and they dare not ever forget it, Moses said. So therefore, remember the Lord your God. But at the same time that those words look back, they also looked ahead. As we said, this is a moment of transition. God knows that the people are about to undergo a significant change of circumstances, and as their circumstances change, so will the likelihood of their self-perception and their self-understanding. They had been in the wilderness, now they're going to be in the promised land. They had been in a place of austerity, now they're going to be in a place of abundance. They had been a place of, of ruggedness, now they're going to be in a place of comfort and security. They had been in a place of danger and uncertainty, now they're going to be in a place where they're going to accumulate wealth and have flocks and herds. And Moses knows and God knows that, that once they move into those comfortable lives, their thinking will change and they will begin to assume that somehow they are the ones who are responsible for all of that. It says elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy that they will be occupying houses they didn't build and they will be harvesting from crops they didn't plant. And that's why uh, we read a moment ago in verse 17, Moses said to the people, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Moses tells the people to remember God. Remember who brought you through these 40 years. Remember what He's about to give you in the future. 
But it's even more drastic than that. Don't just remember the past 40 years. Don't just remember the next few years. Look further back in history than that and look further ahead into the future than that. This two-pronged memory calls them to remember both their roots and their destiny. First, they need to remember their roots. They need to remember that it was God who had called them into being in the first place. If we were to ask the question, why did the nation of Israel even exist in the first place? The answer would be, it has nothing to do with their sophistication or their power or their standing on the world stage. Because frankly, they didn't have any of that. Because before God called Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis chapter 12, there was no nation of Israel And so when God decided to set into motion His plan to redeem the world and call it back to Him, He he didn't go looking for the most advanced, most powerful civilization in the world. Instead, He chose an old married couple, Abraham and Sarah, who didn't even have any children. And He said to them, I'm going to make you to be the mother and father, the matriarch and patriarch of my new family, and through you I'm going to save the world. And that family that came from them and the nation that grew out of them, that nation wasn't called by God because they were special. They were special because they were called by God. One chapter earlier in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, Moses says, The Lord didn't set His affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. Israel didn't just owe its survival for these last 40 years to God's providential care. They owed their very existence to God. He was the one that had called them into being and had given them a purpose. But as they look ahead, they need to remember that God has also ordained their final destiny. That they need to remember that God has given them a unique and holy purpose. Biblical Israel didn't exist for its own sake. It was never intended to be an end unto itself. Israel existed because God had called it to fulfill an exclusive role in His plan to save the world. Once again, if we go back in our minds to Genesis chapter 12, to that first call that that God issues to Abraham and and Sarah, we see embedded in the call the very idea that, that what God is giving to Israel is to be for the good of others, not just themselves. Here's how the Bible records it in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that last phrase there is critical to the entire mission of God and the entire purpose of Israel. God had called Israel so that through her, He could bring this world back into fellowship with Him. And so that means that the comfort and the security and the blessing and the abundance that Israel was about to receive was not solely for their own good, but for the good of the entire world. 
She had been called to be a light and a blessing to the ends of the earth. So therefore, remember the Lord your God. Remember your past that He called you into being from out of nothing. And at the same time, remember your future that He has given you a holy and eternal destiny that you were called to fulfill. All of that is still relevant to us today as the church of Jesus Christ. Those same two realities hold true for us. We too must remember the Lord our God because we have to remember our roots, where we came from, and we have to remember our destiny, where it is God is sending us. First, we have to remember that the church of Jesus Christ owes its very existence to the saving work of Christ our Lord. Might seem like an overstatement, but it can't be overstated. We want to put ourselves at the center of the action. We like to think somehow it's about us. Look at what I've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Look at what we do. But the reality is that the church doesn't exist because of what I did or what you do or what anybody else has done. The church exists because and only because of Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair, we have a part to play. We'll talk about that in a moment. Our actions, our choices, they do matter. But at the end of the day, any choice we make and any action we take is only a response to what God did first. The church doesn't exist because a bunch of like-minded and well-meaning people got together and decided it'd be a good idea. The church exists because Jesus Christ went to a cross and through a grave to bring new life to the world. On the night that he was to be arrested and executed in John's gospel, Jesus says this, in John chapter 15, verse 16, to his disciples, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. The church is not the result of div- human initiative. It's the result of divine initiative. Because in Jesus Christ, God has spoken first. God has acted first. This was all his idea long before it was ours. You know, one of the debates that has raged in the church down throughout the ages for centuries, even thousands of years now, is the debate over the role of of predestination versus free will. One side of the debate, which has come to be known primarily as Calvinism, named after the 16th century theologian who kind of helped formalize this way of thinking, uh, it places a heavy emphasis on God's sovereignty by teaching a belief in predestination, which in essence is the belief that that God through His sovereignty has already preordained who will be saved and, and who will not, and we don't really have any say in the matter. God makes those choices On the other side of the debate is what's known as Arminianism, named after the 17th century theologian who who helped to popularize this way of thinking. And and Arminianism holds that, that God has acted in Jesus Christ to save the world, but then each individual has the free choice whether or not to receive that gift. 
Now, I don't intend today to, to oversimplify either argument, and I'm sure you're disappointed to hear me say I don't have a final answer to the question. But I would point out one thing that both sides of the debate hold in common. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, we all understand that we are only responding to what God has done first. God spoke first. God acted first. God moved first. God saved first. And whatever choice you and I have or don't have in the matter is a choice only made in response to God's initiating love. That means we must remember that the church of Jesus Christ is God's idea, not ours. As believers, we're part of a movement that was going on long before we showed up and will be going on long after we are gone from here. And so, therefore, everything we do as a church must be done in fulfillment of the mission He gave us. We need to remember where we came from. But as we look back and remember where we came from in the initiating love of Jesus Christ, we also need to look ahead and remember where we're going. And just like Israel, keep in mind the unique and exclusive role that God has given us to play. God didn't call the church into existence for our sake. He called the church into existence for the sake of the world that we are called to serve. We are not here primarily for our own comfort and our own security and our own peace of mind. It's all well and good to have those things. But to the extent that we have them, they are blessings meant to be used to draw others into that same abundance and that same privilege. And so when God called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He wasn't telling us to do that when we finally get around to it as a side note to everything else we do. Rather, it was the central call of who we are as the church, that everything we are and have and do is to point through us, beyond us, to others. Some time ago, somebody posed a question to me that um, has helped me rethink a little bit about how we approach church. It's amazing how sometimes just learning to ask the right question makes all the difference. The question is this, if the church were to suddenly go away, if this church were to suddenly go away, what would the community around us miss? Now, notice what I didn't ask. I didn't ask if the church were to go away, what would we who are a part of it miss? I already know the answer to that question, and so do you. We're experiencing a little bit of it right now. We would miss the fellowship that we share. We would miss the pleasure of the Sunday school lessons that our teachers bring to us. We would miss the music and the worship that we share. We would miss the meaningful engagement of shared tasks and ministry, and these would all be terrible losses. And the disruptions that we have experienced in recent days have given us just a little flavor of that. We, we understand now, in a way we didn't just a week ago, what would be missing in our lives if the church were suddenly not to be there. But the question I asked is not, would we miss? What would we miss if the church was suddenly gone? The question is, what would the community around us miss if we suddenly went away? 
Are we so oriented towards ourselves that the world around us wouldn't even notice our departure if we disappeared? Are we so inwardly focused that there would be no impact felt outside these walls? Or are we pointing towards others enough that if for some reason this church were to be gone, the world around us would notice a hole in the world? Now, all I'm doing this morning is asking the question. Because I think asking the question forces us to rethink how we orient ourselves. God didn't call us into existence for our own sake. He called us into existence for the sake of the world around us. And in this season of stress and disruption, I think God is giving us a unique and in some cases uh, recently unprecedented opportunity to put that into practice as the routines of our lives have been disrupted and we're kind of being forced out into the world beyond us, we're being asked in new ways how we might serve, how we might give, how we might share, how we might be a blessing. So in the midst of these days, let's do what Moses heeded the people of Israel to do. Let's remember the Lord our God. Let's remember where we came from, and just as importantly, let's remember where we're going and stay focused on the holy and high task God has given us to share. Thanks for letting me share this word with you, and I pray it has been useful and helpful to you. We're going to close out worship here now in just a moment as our worship team makes its way back onto the stage and leads us in a final song, as they do. Let me extend a simple invitation. There may be many of you listening today for the first time who've never experienced what we talk about when we speak of a relationship with Jesus Christ. My prayer is that maybe something that we've shared together in these moments would would spark something in you. If you'd like to know more about that, use that connect button we talked about a moment ago. Reach out to us. Let us know how we can be of help to you. My prayer, though, is that uh, wherever we may be in our journey in these days, we will stay focused in the work God has given us to do. Let's remember the Lord our God. Let's remember that He's the one who's brought us to this point. And let's remember that He's going to see us through this no matter what. God bless you.